0: Welcome to our last sermon of our First John Sermon Series. Um, the title of this sermon is A Crescendo of Certainty. Next week is Easter, and the weeks following Easter will be hitting the book of 2 John and 3 John. But today, um, we'll finish John's first letter to the church in Asia Minor. Uh, first, I just have to tell you that this is a large section of text. Um, It could have, maybe should have been two sermons. But I do think these two sections go together. So, particularly with reference to the second section, verses 13 through 21, we're going to fly at a pretty high level. So just to give you a fair warning. Uh, Second, since we're wrapping up the book, I want to very quickly remind us of the main point of the entire book. Um, The Apostle John's purpose is In writing this letter is twofold, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. In other words, he wants to give those who are true Christians assurance of their salvation. He wants you to know that you know that you know that you're a child of God. On the other hand, he wants to challenge those who are Christian in name only but who aren't actually children of God. That's a very dangerous place to be. And he's repetitively given us three different tests. Number one, the doctrinal test. Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary atoning death in the place of ruined sinners. This is the root, the doctrinal test. Two, the moral test. Do you joyfully obey God's good and gracious commands? This is the fruit. And then third, the social test. Do you love out of the overflow of Jesus's perfect love for you? More fruit. So how can you know you're a Christian and have assurance in that? Believe in Jesus Christ keep God's commands, and love the brothers and sisters around you. All right, let's get into this text. Since we've already read it, I'm going to dive in. And this morning, we're going to pretend that we're in a courtroom setting, and Jesus is on trial. So point one, the charge. I want to remind us that the charge of the Gnostics was this. The charge is... Jesus isn't who he says he is. He's not the person that he claimed to be. Remember, one sect of Gnosticism was led by a man named Seranthus, who taught that there was a difference between Jesus, the human son of Mary and Joseph, and the Christ. He taught that the divine Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him just before he went to the cross. Now, before you begin to think that this is just a pencil-headed, highbrow theology discussion, I want you to consider the implications. If Saranthus is right, then it was Jesus, just a normal human that died on a Roman cross in between two thieves. Just a common man. Friends, a common man alone cannot die to atone for your sin. A common man can be an example of sacrifice for you. He can be a folk hero. He can be a portrait of tragedy. But your sin can't be transferred to him. And his righteousness can't be transferred to you. If Serenthus is right you and I are still dead in our sins because he wasn't the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This is the difference between life and death. More on this later. So the charge was this. Jesus is not the Christ. And I want to ask the question, is this not the same charge then as it is today, the New Age movement, and most of our society for that matter, is happy to say that Jesus was a good person, even a good moral teacher, maybe a revolutionary of some sort. But the divine Christ? Not a chance. There's nothing new about this charge. It was the same then as it is today. So that's the charge. And I want us to remember what John wrote at the end of his gospel, because I think he's trying to do the same thing here at the end of this letter. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is speaking to the Gnostics, and he's speaking to us today. He wants us to believe. What does he want us to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this, we might have life. So that's the charge, that that Jesus isn't who he said he was. Now point two, the witnesses. In any courtroom, there are witnesses that are called to the stand. This courtroom's no different. And I'll point out that the believability of the case often rests upon the reliability of the witnesses. If a witness is called to the stand and they're known to be unreliable for some reason, it's really hard to win the case. Look what John does here in our text, back in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth for there are 3 that testify the spirit and the water and the blood and these 3 agree what's he talking about water and blood well some scholars disagree on this actually some think that he's referring to the sacraments of baptism and the lord's supper water and blood the others Think that it's a reference to the blood and water, which came out of Jesus' side in John chapter 19, as the soldier speared him. But the most uh, clear and compelling argument, and the overwhelming majority view, is this. That water refers to Jesus' baptism, and blood refers to his crucifixion. And in the context of 1 John and his argument here, this makes perfect sense. So check this out. John's first witness he brings to the stand is water. Jesus' baptism. Let's go read. What happened at Jesus' baptism? Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. it. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, do you see the trap that John's laying here? Saranthus and his band of Mary Gnostics would have been elated at this. They'd be saying, yeah, see, it's exactly like we teach. Jesus, the human was being baptized and became the Christ when the Spirit came down on him. To which John says, not so fast. I'd like to call my second witness. Not by the water only, but by the water and what? The blood. The blood. Jesus' crucifixion. What happened at Jesus' crucifixion? Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So, at Jesus' baptism, the Father affirms Jesus as his Son, with whom he is well-pleased and notice what John calls Jesus back in our first John text verse 6 this is he who came by water and blood Jesus Christ he was the Christ at his baptism and he was the Christ at his crucifixion and he's the Christ today and forevermore so witness number 1 god the father affirms Jesus at his baptism the water. Witness two. The torn curtain, earthquakes, open tombs, dark skies in the middle of the day. They all point in one way. And the centurion saw the evidence clearly. What was the centurion's testimony? Truly, this was the Son of God. The blood. (coughs) Understand this. I've I've already pointed this out, but uh, either John... Or Saranthus is right. Either John or Saranthus is right. They can't both be right. If Saranthus is right, a mere human died on the cross that day and nothing more. But if John's right, we can have hope of salvation. Why? Remember what John told us in this exact letter in 1 John 4.10. He said... In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ, the God-man, was able to die as an atoning, wrath-absorbing, sacrificial substitute for our sins. If Serenthus and the New Age movement are right, there's no hope of salvation john's right there's eternal certainty of salvation for those who believe and i'll just point this out was jesus's baptism done in a corner or merely in the presence of a couple of people no there were hundreds who witnessed his baptism if god the father hadn't audibly spoken declaring jesus to be his son And if the Spirit hadn't visibly descended on him, hundreds of people would have spoken out and could have spoken out and said, uh uh, that didn't happen. Not true. But they didn't. His baptismal witness was a solid and reliable one. How about the crucifixion? Curtain torn in two from top to bottom. Earthquakes, empty graves, dark skies. If it didn't happen that way, thousands of eyewitnesses could have cried foul and said, no, not true. But they didn't. The blood is a solid and reliable witness. Now, witness number three. What does John say? Look at verse six again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. So, witness number three is the Spirit Himself. And the Spirit is what? The truth. Remember, the reliability of the witnesses determines the validity of the case. You can't get more reliable than the Spirit who is the truth. Uh, Look with me at John chapter 15, verse 26. What does Jesus himself say about the Spirit? He says, But when the Helper, meaning the Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, Jesus says. This is the Spirit's primary role in Scripture, to shine light on, to bear witness about Jesus. The Spirit isn't some mystical gas. He's a person. His primary role isn't to give us a fuzzy feeling while singing music, or to bring glitter down through air vents and Reading. His primary role is to shine light on Christ. He's the truth. Further down in John 16, verse 13 and 14, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, meaning Jesus, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies the Son, Jesus Christ. He's an eternal witness for who Jesus is. Jesus also told his disciples that the Spirit would come and help them recall everything that he had taught, which they recorded in the Bible. So the Spirit inspired Scripture. The water, the blood, the Spirit are all three objective witnesses. John brought three unbelievably reliable witnesses to give us testimony about Christ. What's he doing here? First, he's making a proper case according to the law. What does Deuteronomy 19.15 say? It says, "...a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime." or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So John doesn't just bring a single witness to us. No, he has three. Further, if you have three witnesses, they can't all be saying different things, can they? If they do... You have a problem, and you're going to lose the case. What does John tell us about these three witnesses that he's brought? Look back in our text, 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8. He says, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. John's witnesses are reliable, and they're all saying the same thing. They agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then, John makes an argument from lesser to greater, doesn't he? Look at verse 9. He says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. So, If you had three reliable human witnesses who are all saying the same thing, it would be reasonable to believe what they're saying. How much more when the testimony is not just human, but divine, coming from God. His testimony is greater. So, the witnesses are reliable. They agree, and they're from God. Do you see how John's building his case for Christ here? And it even gets better. Look look at the front of verse 10. He says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony where? In Himself. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. How do you know the truth about Jesus? You hear it preached, you hear it taught. And the Spirit who lives in you is saying, Yes, that's right! Amen! Right on! That's the truth! You have that testimony in you, according to John. So, you have external witnesses and a glorious internal one. Now, the charge has been brought. The witnesses have taken the stand. We're ready for point three, the verdict. Point three, the verdict. Now, here's where the switch happens. Typically, in a courtroom setting where the verdict is read, the fate of the one who's on trial is at stake. But in this case, it's a little different. You see, Jesus is the one on trial here. He's the one who the charge was brought against. But here, the jurors themselves are the ones whose fate hangs in the balance. It's you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. How you decide here, based on the witness's testimony, is a life or death decision. So, how will you cast your vote? And I want to return again to verse 10. Look at what John says here. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Do you see what he's saying? God has borne clear and compelling and reliable testimony concerning his Son, Jesus Christ. The unbeliever is essentially saying, yeah, God knows the truth about his, his son Jesus, but I know better. God has borne testimony about his son, but it's not true. He's a liar. I know everything. God knows nothing. It's ridiculous when you put it like that. This is why the sin of unbelief is so egregious. God has revealed the truth of Jesus at his baptism, at his crucifixion, certainly at his resurrection, and has continued to reveal him through his spirit, through the Bible. The evidence is overwhelming if you have eyes to see. It's an issue of belief, and it's a choice. It's a choice of life and death. Look at verses 11 and 12 here. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To to believe in the Son means eternal life. And to be clear, eternal life isn't just a future thing in Scripture. It's a present reality. It's a kind of life that we live right now. And it's never-ending. That eternal life, both now and forevermore, only comes through Jesus Christ. Whoever has the Son has life. On the other hand, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What does it mean to have the Son of God here in our text? What does it mean to have the Son of God? It means... To turn from your sin and to Jesus. Trusting in him as your only hope of salvation. It means believing in the Jesus of the Bible. Fully God and fully man. It means knowing that his death on the cross was in your place and for your sin. And believing that God raised him from the dead on the third day. It means having Christ as your hope in life and in death. What will you decide, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? How will you choose? If you believe the testimony of God, John's telling you, you will have eternal life. If you choose to call God a liar, you will not have life. I and every other Christian here this morning are pleading with you on behalf of God. Choose life this very moment. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You can know that you're saved from eternal damnation. Now, with the time we have left, I'm going to very quickly walk through this last section. Point four, what we can know. What we can know. Uh, For those of you who have listened to the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit, and believed in Jesus Christ. There are many, many, many things that you can know for certain. John here wants to give you six truths that you can absolutely know as a Christian. Here we go. Number one, you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. A couple of truths just to highlight here. Do you see the certainty in what John says? If you believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you don't have to be on the fence. Maybe I'll go to heaven. Maybe I won't. I don't really know. No, you can know. If, if I ask the question this morning, are you married? And you said, I don't know. it would be pretty strange. You should know whether you're married or not. Same here. If you believe in Christ, you can know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. Now, Jonathan Edwards famously put it like this. He said, you can know honey in two distinct ways. You can know the exact chemical makeup of honey, or you can taste it. Friends, if you believe in Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. You can know it up here in your head, and you can taste it. You can experience the Lord's goodness, His faithfulness, and His nearness to you through His Spirit. Second, and I've already hit on this, but look at the verb tense here. You may know that you have eternal life. You have eternal life. John doesn't say that you will have eternal life. He says that you, Christian, have it right now. Eternal life isn't just in the future. It's a present reality for the believer. So we can know that we have eternal life. Second, we know that God hears us when we pray. We know that God hears us when we pray. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time here, but this is an astounding truth that I would love for you to go home and meditate on. You, Christian, you have the God of the universe's ear. He hears your prayers. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. You have the God of the universe's ear. The question is, do you talk to him? Imagine having a bank account with a hundred billion dollars in it and rarely, if ever, making a withdrawal. For many of us, that's what prayer is. We've been given the greatest gift ever in having God's ear. So I encourage you this morning, go to him in prayer. Number three, we know that we will receive what we ask for in prayer. Look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If this last truth, that that, that God hears our prayers, wasn't wild enough, he doesn't just hear our prayers, he answers them. This is too good to be true. Now, it isn't as if God is some cosmic genie of some sort, where we we pray for whatever we want, and he just dispenses it immediately. No. Remember, in verse 14, John gave us a parameter. It's when we ask anything according to his what? Well, this is how Jesus prayed. Father. Not my, not my will, but your will be done. How does Jesus tell us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. How can we know that we're praying God's will? Well, one of the best ways I know is to pray scripture. Here's some quick examples. James chapter 1 verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It's God's will that you ask him for wisdom. When you ask him for wisdom, he'll answer your request. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1-3. through Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Verse 2 For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will is your sanctification, which means growth into Christ's likeness. What if you prayed today that God would sanctify you? Is that God's will? Yes, it is. He'll answer it. What about Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3? This is the the Abrahamic covenant, or, or the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is it God's will that the nations be blessed through Christ, the seed of Abraham? Yes, it is. What if you started praying for world missions and that the gospel would go forth to the nations? Is that God's will? Yes, God will answer that prayer. This certainly is not the only way to pray. But when you feed your prayers with scripture, you're a lot more likely to pray God's will. Now, I'm tempted just to skip over verses 16 and 17 because this is a whole can of worms, but I won't. John has just told us that we have God's ear and that he answers our prayers. Then he gives us some specific thing that we should pray for. Look at verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. There are so many different views on these verses. And it would take an entire sermon to untangle many of them. So I'm just going to tell you what I believe John's saying. He seems to be saying, following the, the train of thought here of 1 John, Christian, you have God's ear. He hears your prayers. He answers your prayers. If you see another Christian that's in sin, don't talk to everyone else about it in gossip. Talk to God about it. Pray for your brother and sister. The best thing in the world that you can do for your Christian brother or sister is to pray for them when you see them in sin. Praise God that a Christian sin does not lead to death. Because they're they're forgiven. Because of Jesus. You should still pray for them. Now, when it comes to the non-believer, Their sins will lead to death. Why? Because their sins are are worse than all of ours? No. Because they don't have the Son of God. Remember, they don't have life. John has just told us that. Here's what I think John's saying here. For those who, who don't have the Son, you shouldn't necessarily be praying for their sin but for their salvation. If my neighbor down the street sins with alcohol and he's drunk all the time and I pray that he gets sober but he never comes to Christ, how good is that? If you're praying for your lost friends, pray that they'll come to believe in Jesus. If you see your brother or sister in sin, Pray for them. You have the creator of the universe here. Number four. Fourth thing that we can know. We know that God's children are changed and protected. Changed and protected. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But... He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John has already hit both sides of this multiple times in this letter. A Christian is not without sin. Anyone who, who claims that is a liar, John told us. And a Christian grows in godliness over time. They're not stuck in habitual sin as a way of life. They're changed. And they're protected. Why are we protected? I love this truth here. Look at the text. Why are we protected? Because he who was born of God. He who was born of God. Who is that? Jesus. It's Jesus. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. If you're a Christian, you're protected from Satan by Jesus himself. You can know that this morning. Check out John chapter 17, verse 12. Look at how Jesus protected his disciples. He's praying this. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Look what 1 Peter 1, 3-5 tells us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power is guarding us through Christ. How about Jude 24 and 25, the doxology at the end of the letter? It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. If you are a Christian, you're protected from Satan by Jesus. You can take that to the bank. Fifth, we know that we are from God. We know that we are from God. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See the contrast here. Uh, The Christian can know that they're from God, safe in the arms of Jesus. The contrast is the world. John tells us that they're in the grasp of Satan, and they don't seem to be struggling, do they? John Stott points out here that the world lies in the arms of the evil one. They're either asleep or just okay with being in the evil one's power. There's no third option here. There's being from God or of the world. And John's telling you this morning that you can know that you're from God. Sixth, we know the Son of God has come. We know the Son of God has come. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you see the certainty in all of this? Christian, you don't have to be squeamish about planting your stake in the ground and standing firmly on these truths. You can know them. Jesus, the Son of God, has come in the flesh. You can know him. You can abide in him. You can know that he's the true God in the eternal life. John isn't hedging his bets here. He's speaking exclusively and with authority. Now, in closing, look at how John ends this letter. Verse 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. At first glance, this seems like a weird way to end the letter, doesn't it? it? seems kind of out of left field, or a weird shift from what he's been saying. But it's not. I want us to understand this. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. John's saying, Christians, stay away from imposters. And is this not what he's been teaching us all along? The Jesus of the Gnostics is an imposter. Stay away from that. The God of obeying your own whims and desires above God's commands, that's an imposter. Stay away from that. The God of selfishness above loving the brothers is an imposter. Stay away from that. There's only one true God. And he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. There are so many things in this world trying to distort that truth. John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Believe in the true Jesus. Obey God's good and gracious commands. Love your brothers and sisters. Let's pray.